0: Well, we're continuing in Daniel 9 this morning. And if you remember last week, this was a unique chapter. We said this is kind of a high-water chapter, really, for the book of Daniel, that in this prayer of Daniel in chapter 9, which we looked at last week, uh, what a revealing portrait it is of the kind of man Daniel was, where his heart was at. We've said throughout that this book just paints this guy as a sterling example of godly character. You remember, he had been reading his Bible. And because he'd read his Bible, he knew that God had declared that the period of captivity for the Jews in Babylon would be 70 years. He also knew that that time was just about over. So he said on one hand, he was confessing, he was telling the truth about what was true about God and Israel. And then he was also requesting, he was asking God to keep his word and restore the Jews, restore Jerusalem, restore the temple where they met with God. Today we start in at verse 20. He says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication or my request before the Lord my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, and the holy mountain is Mount Zion, where Jerusalem and Jerusalem's temple stood, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously—this probably refers back to chapter eight, when he was introduced to Gabriel as he was given understanding of the vision—he uh, came to me. Uh, New American Standard says, "In my extreme weariness," uh, this would imply this is kind of towards the end of the day. Maybe he hasn't eaten all day. And this this prayer that we read in chapter nine this is a summation. This isn't all that he prayed. This is a summary. And so, probably he'd been in prayer for some time. That's one option. New King James, NIV, other translations say, "Being instead of saying, came to me in my extreme weariness, they read that Gabriel was caused to fly swiftly. One reference, and I know nothing about uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, and I don't even remember which language this one was written in. I have no idea what the issues are related to interpreting this phrase. But, One way, it's a reference to Daniel. He's weary, having spent the day in prayer. The other is a reference to Gabriel, meaning he was caused to fly swiftly. This would imply that God had sent him on some important errand. Whichever way it goes, he concludes verse 21, about the time of the evening offering. So here's Gabriel, somebody Daniel's already met in chapter 8. Here he is again, and he's come to him, and it's interesting that he says he came at the time of the evening offering offering. Now you remember, Daniel is an old dude at this point. He's near the end of his life. And he was taken captive as a young man in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem. And then in 586 B.C. the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was raised. And this is about 538 or 539 B.C. In other words, Daniel hasn't been at an evening offering for almost 70 years. And there hasn't been a temple to make an offering in since 586. But still, when he describes when the angel came to him, he says he's on temple time. He's still, he's still on temple or Jerusalem time. He's still thinking like somebody who was making these daily offerings. He's associating the end of the day with the evening offering. And you remember earlier when we saw him praying morning, noon, and night? Psalms talks about praying morning, noon, and night, but also as part of that three-way meeting with God each day. You remember the Jews had a morning offering, a lamb, and uh, they poured an oblation. They poured out drink offering, and I think there was some grain offering with that also. But that happened in the morning and in the evening, every day. And you've got to wonder if Daniel isn't still not only cognizant of that, but if his own prayer times, if he wasn't uh, spiritually, if you will, or emotionally, if he wasn't praying at the time of day when he knew if they were still in Jerusalem, they would be offering these offerings to God. He's still thinking like a person in covenant relationship with God, thinking about what would be offered to God at that time. And I find this fascinating and encouraging that no matter how many years it intervened, And remember, his only memories of any of this would have been only as a small child and a young man when he was taken captive, but this is still what's on his mind when he says, well, it's evening, and gee, you know, if we were in Jerusalem, they'd be making the offering about now, and and so I'm praying instead. And this makes me think, uh, I want to ask myself and ask you guys if you've been offering any incense lately, if you've been making any of these sacrifices lately, You read later in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and there it says that the prayers of the saints are incense. And if you remember in the temple, incense was part of the offering to God. And that there in heaven, it says they take this fire and it's as if the prayers that you and I offer are this incense that gets wafted in front of God. That's thinking like Daniel. That when we pray, when we do what he did, We're like Daniel. We're making an offering such as we can to God, and he accepts that in heaven. This is a great encouragement. And it's just another insight into what kind of a guy Daniel was and another encouragement in my mind for us to be the same kind of person and see that as a sacrifice we can offer to God. So the end of the day, he's tired. The angel sent swiftly. Either way we read that. About the time of the evening offering, which makes us think back to Jerusalem and the temple, and restoration, and he says, verse twenty-two: The angel Gabriel gave me instruction and talked with me, and he said, "O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with or and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication or at the beginning of your request, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision." He says, at the beginning of your request, the command was issued. Let's just assume that Daniel's been praying several hours. Gabriel tells him that when you started praying, let's just say several hours ago, the command was given and I was sent. That would make sense if the interpretation caused to fly swiftly is the thought. That I was sent and I flew swiftly from heaven and I was started on this mission the, the very beginning of your prayer. Um, oftentimes, I think, especially if we don't, we're not hearing what we want to hear, or seeing God do what we want to do. Sometimes we think if we if we pray loud enough, long enough, get enough people to pray, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we'll bend God's ear and we'll get His attention and bend His will and He'll listen to us. This is a great encouragement, though. This says, "From the time you began to request, I was sent. As soon as you started, He's been at this hours." But but the angel says. God God heard you as soon as you started. And he sent me at that very beginning. You know, in chapter 10, which we'll look at later, you've got Daniel fasting and praying for three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, an angel comes to him again. And it's interesting there that the angel says, from the time you started to fast and pray, I was sent. So Daniel's been laboring hard, fasting and praying for three weeks in chapter 10. The angel came and said, I was sent three weeks ago. I was sent the day you started. But there was some disturbance and there were some things I needed to work through, which we'll look at later. But in other words, again, God sent the answer as soon as, it start, as, soon as the request was given. There was no delay. No delay. Peter uh, quotes, I think it's Psalm 34, when he says, God's ear is attentive to the cry of the righteous. And for you and I, many children in here, many parents in here, more than a parent is quick or ready to hear the real need or the real cry of their child, God is listening when you and I pray. I think sometimes we're making requests for things that in God's economy just aren't priorities. He still wants to hear about those. But we don't have to arm twist God. We don't have to convince him to listen to us. He's listening. And when we're praying about his things and especially representing The things that are on his mind, as Daniel's doing here, and his interest, putting him and his things first, he doesn't answer sometime down the road. He is making this answer as soon as we start. There have been at least two or three times I can think of in my life where I've set aside time to pray, and as soon as I've started, God has spoken something specifically and directly that I knew was from God right when I started. Uh, we did this as a family once and we were driving to a place so that we were going to spend the day here and we were going to fast and pray. and, And we heard from the Lord on our drive out. We hadn't even started. And that's the thought here. As soon as you started, Daniel, I was sent. This is great encouragement to me that when we're taking something to God that's important, something that's on His mind or our mind, He is quick to hear. He is quick to respond. We don't have to arm twist Him. And I love the second phrase... I have come to tell you because there's a reason you are highly esteemed. Now, you know, picture this. Here's, a, here's an old Jewish guy, an old exile in a foreign land, in his room wherever he's at, at this point under the reign of Cyrus. Probably at this point in his life, how, how widely known he is at this point, hard to say. Alone by himself, probably never married, Some people think Daniel and his fellows were eunuchs. I'm not convinced of that, but probably never married, no children. All by himself here. And God in heaven looked down at this guy and says, You are highly esteemed. You know, I I picture heaven up here and earth down here, and God looks from heaven and he sees this sparkle, this star on earth, and he says, That's my man Daniel. That's the guy that I value. The word here, highly esteemed, means valued or precious. Valuable. In heaven's eyes, Daniel, you are very valuable. You are considered precious by God himself. And again, although Daniel gets these incredible revelations, one of which we'll read about here in these visions, and he stands before these mighty Gentile kings. Remember, he stood before two of the greatest kingdoms on earth, uh, Medo-Persia and Babylon, It's not for that reason that God says he's valuable or precious. It's because the kind of person Daniel was. And you remember back to chapter 1 from the time that he set his heart to not be defiled, that he was going to stay true to God through the rest of his life. And his fellows, he was valued or esteemed because of his godly character, because of his decision and his faithfulness in putting God and God's things first. You know, you and I can do the same thing. There's nothing that keeps us from being a Daniel in our life today. In fact, you remember Jesus says of John the Baptist, none, uh, no one more important in the Old Covenant than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I mean, anyone who knows Jesus today is, is closer than Daniel is a child of God versus a friend or a servant of God. And you're already loved by God. But again, like a parent delighting in their children when they do the right thing. You remember John writes and says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. Well, that's the thought here. Daniel's walked in truth. He's put God and his things first, as we saw in the prayer last week. And God looks down from heaven and sees this bright shining star and says, that's Daniel, the one that I highly esteem. You and I can have the same thing said of us. Look at verse 24. This is one of the most important prophecies in all the Bible. It is one of the most specific prophecies in all the Bible. It's kind of interesting as i thought about this. I'm not sure why this text is not taught on more frequently related to Jesus. Uh, the 77's prophecy is generally well known among any who study prophecy in general, but the specific nature that it touches on with relationship to Jesus himself is so startling and so clear. Um, It's as clear as Isaiah 53, for instance, uh, a text most of us are well familiar with about Jesus being the suffering servant. This is equally clear. I'm not sure why we don't hear more of it. But look at verse 24. This is what Gabriel has come to tell him. Seventy weeks... When you see weeks, it just means seven. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people, that is the Jews, and for your holy city, that is Jerusalem. Seventy-sevens have been decreed. You remember in chapter 2, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, it's God who decrees the times and the kingdoms on earth. And in the past, in all these visions, you remember that they all pertain to Gentiles, not Israel. They've all been the Gentile kingdoms. Well, here, Gabriel says not only has God decreed the period of the Gentiles and these four earthly kingdoms, but Daniel, he's also decreed a period of 77s for the Jews, your people, and for your city, Jerusalem. This period of 77s. And in this period of 77s, God has decreed to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So a period of 77s. Let me just say the 77s are almost certainly years, seven year periods. Seven year periods, I'll tell you why in just a minute, but almost certainly 70 periods of seven years, 70 weeks of years. So that would be a total of 490 years. So as you read it, think of it in that sense. So Gabriel tells Daniel that just as God has decreed the time of the Gentile kingdoms, he's also decreed Israel's time. And Israel, God has decreed there's going to be a 490 year period related to the Jews and Jerusalem, 490 years. Six things will happen within this 490 year period. Split this, six, this group of six up into three and three. Within this 490-year period, transgression or rebellion will be finished. God will bring an end to rebellion. God will put an end to sin, sin in general, just deficiency. God will make atonement for sin or iniquity within this period related to Israel. God will make atonement for sin. Then also the second half, he will also bring in everlasting righteousness or he will bring in an age of righteousness before this or within this scope of this 490 years. He will seal up or prophecy and vision will be fulfilled within this 490 year period and he will anoint the most holy place or he will anoint or set apart the holy of holies. So... Here's the Gentile kingdoms, we know the order they come in, and here's Israel, and here's 490 years in which all these things are going to transpire or take place. Finish rebellion, put an end to rebellion, put an end to sin, make atonement, bring in righteousness, fulfill prophecy, and anoint or set apart the Holy of Holies. Um, I'm not going to go into all the specifics of these. Uh, you can certainly... Uh, in fact, uh, Peggy was nice enough to send me a e- uh, website. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is kind of an odd name. Is, did I get his name right? Jewish scholar, anyways. has a website. All kinds of information on prophetic stuff related to Daniel. Very helpful. Uh, you can certainly read lots more about this and what some of the implication on them might mean. But there's going to be, within this time period, these six important things are going to take place. Look at verse 25. So we know that there's this time period set apart for the Jews and their city, Jerusalem. And you're to know, Daniel, you're to discern or understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Remember, it just means seven. Seven sevens, and 62 sevens, Jerusalem will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So the angel says, this 490 year period is going to start when there's a decree given to rebuild Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is a rubble heap. It was totally destroyed uh, 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. So it's a rubble heap. The temple's gone entirely. But there's going to be a command given to rebuild Jerusalem. If you look in Ezra, Nehemiah, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, there's at least four options on when this this actually occurred. Uh, The best seems to be that when Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., this is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2, that when he gives the order for Nehemiah to return and rebuild Jerusalem, that's probably the proclamation the angel's talking about. If you read those same books, before this, before this Nehemiah chapter 2 takes place, the Jews have actually returned and they have rebuilt, in part, the temple. But the city is still a rubble heap so that when Nehemiah comes, they said there's so much trash, you can't start rebuilding. We've just got to clear the city streets. We've just got to get the stuff cleared away so we can begin rebuilding the city. So this appears to be the best option of about four to see that the beginning of this 490-year clock began in 445 when Artaxerxes told Nehemiah, return and rebuild the city. The Jews had already returned. The temple was at least partially restored at this point, but the city was not. So 445 B.C. This division, it says there's a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks 49 years is about the period of time that it took to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, there's no real clear understanding on why the, this uh, this initial 69 periods of seven is broken up by seven and 62. The best understanding seems to be that is about the amount of time it took from the time the decree was given until Jerusalem was restored as a city was about 49 years. So we've got these two divisions. But go back to the whole thing. He says... 69, 7. So 69, that makes 69 periods of 7 years. Out of 70, makes 483 years. And Gabriel says at the end of 483 years, Messiah the Prince will come. 483 years after Nehemiah chapter 2, your Messiah will be here. If you were a Jew living in the time of Jesus, do you think this might strike you at some point? Daniel was a, a book of their Bible. They knew this. They knew this passage. In fact, you remember when he tells the Sanhedrin, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory? That was a reference to Daniel. This, these were well-known texts. These weren't obscure. So here's a verse that says, at about 30 AD, the Messiah will arrive. Your Messiah, God's anointed one, the Savior of Israel will be there at about 30 AD. Does this seem like a no-brainer? If we say <clears throat> if we say like Isaiah 53, how could they read this text and not know this is Jesus? How could they read any of this stuff and not know it was Jesus? You know, at some point we say clearly it's not an issue of information, it's an issue of the will. It's an issue of the will. And you know, before you're too quick to hurl stones at the Jews for not believing, you know, I'm sure that in the same place, apart from God's grace to just sovereignly reach down and save you and I, we would would have done the same thing. It's not an issue of information. This is so black and white. This is, you can't miss this. You can't miss this. That God said the Messiah will be there in 483 years. And in 483 years, Eighty-three years later, Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, rides a donkey into Jerusalem as the crowds cry, Hosanna to the Son of David, the Messianic title. He receives the worship of the crowds. This is a no-brainer. This is the Messiah. The Messiah was here 483 years later. So no matter what else you slice, whatever we make of this timetable, it's clear that 483 years later... Some people, in fact, say down to the day that Jesus was crucified, there's a, book that, there's a book, a full-length book that does nothing more than tell you why to the day from the decree was given to the crucifixion was exactly 483 years. I don't know if it's sliced quite that neatly or not, but there's no getting away from this fact that Jesus comes at the time Daniel said the Messiah would show up, the specific time. Look at verse 26. So, Daniel, from this decree to the Messiah is 483 years. Then, after the 62 weeks, that would be 69 of the 70 weeks, at the end of that period, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The Messiah will be cut off. The term just means to be killed. It could mean to be executed. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing left. So again, if you think not only of Jesus being present and claiming to be the the Messiah, if you not only see that, but if you factor in this that the Messiah is cut off, he's killed, he doesn't just die, he is killed or he is executed. Uh, how can we not fail? How can we fail to see that this is Jesus? Or how can the Jews at that day fail to see this is Jesus? Who else could it be? And again, with Isaiah 53, again, just think that you're a Jew living during the days of Jesus. In fact, compound it with, you remember out of Luke, the, the nation had heard that a Savior was born 30 years earlier, 33 years earlier. Do you remember? There were people who had gone and worshipped the King. There were people who were still living who knew that uh, the King had tried to destroy all the babies to kill this new King who was born. And here are people living during the same time that no that Daniel says the Messiah is coming. And they know that Isaiah 53 says there's this suffering servant who bears sins on the cross, who's cut off and has nothing. So it seems quite clear there's no way getting around, this is as specific as it gets, that this was Jesus, the Messiah came. He came exactly when Gabriel told Daniel he would, and he was cut off. He was killed exactly as Gabriel told Daniel he would be. We'll look at verse 26, the rest of the verse. It says, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now remember, when this is given, the city and the sanctuary are destroyed. The angels told him the city will be rebuilt. And now he tells them again, and at the end of this time, the city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed again. Who are they destroyed by? The people of the prince who is to come. It's easy for us to look back. The people of the prince who is to come, this is the Antichrist. We've talked about him earlier. Uh, But the people that destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple again, were the Romans and was the Roman Empire. And if we go back into those earlier visions of the beasts and the statue, the Roman Empire is that last world empire that would itself be destroyed by God and by his kingdom at the end of the age. So this says the people, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city. It, its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. So there's actually two princes in verse 26. There's Messiah the prince who's cut off, and there's the prince who would come, a prince or a leader, if you will, of the Roman Empire. Up to this point, we've got 69 7s We've got 483 years out of 490. Verse 27 gives us the 70th seven. He, that refers back to the prince who is to come. This isn't the Messiah. This is, this is Antichrist. He will make a covenant or a firm covenant with many for one week. There's the last week, the last seven. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Do you remember when we looked at the Antichrist specifically out of chapter 7? He was a prince of the Roman Empire. We we compared that with Revelation 13. He would be worshipped. He would control the Jews, he would make a covenant, he would break the covenant, he would himself stand in the Holy of Holies and proclaim he was God. That seems to be what Daniel's talking about here again in verses 26 and 27. You know, the question comes in, and we've touched on this briefly before, but here's a 490-year time clock. And what what's the deal with the 69th ending and the beginning of the 70th? If the 69th ended 2,000 years ago, why didn't the 70th end 2,000 years ago? What What is the deal? And clearly, no matter what theological stripe you're of, most scholars agree that there's simply no way to say the 70th seven has already occurred, that it is still future. It's as if you're reading a book, you know, and you finish one chapter and you turn the page, and instead of one page flipping... The pages are stuck together and you flip several chapters ahead and, there, and you read the story as if there had never been a break. And it's like that with this. In 70 AD, when Titus, the Roman, uh, who, who would become the Roman king, when he destroyed Jerusalem, there was no state of Israel. There was no national state of Israel from that point on until 1948. And we've gone through this last 2,000 years in which God tells us that <clears throat> he shifted years. And this 77's time clock, it stopped. And God did something that he didn't tell us beforehand. He said uh, in Paul in Ephesians 3 that I've been handed this mystery, and this mystery is that God's going to tear down the wall that divides Jews and Gentiles. And out of Jews and Gentiles, he's going to make one new man. That's the church. And that's the period in which you and I live. And he says this wasn't revealed in the past. So when Daniel gets this prophecy, this does not mention. It doesn't hint at a 2,000-year division here. But it's there. And this 70th seven has not yet transpired. And the pages got turned and they were stuck together. But there's this whole 2,000-year chapter in between in which you and I live. And it's going to be as if God, when he turns that next page, it's going to be as if there was no break between the time of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and this last seven-year period in which the Romans play this important role again and this Roman prince, this person we know as Antichrist, makes a covenant with the Jews for seven years. And this is why even if you don't know prophetic issues very well, when people talk about the great tribulation, that's a term for this last seven-year period which has not yet transpired. And then it's just it's talked about in Jeremiah and Zechariah and many other places, this terrible, terrible time to come. And when it says desolations are determined, you know when you read most of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19, it's describing this seven-year period. What a terrible, terrible time to be on the earth. A a time of not just moral darkness, but incredible uh, desolation, death, famine, plague, war. A terrible time. That's the last seven-year period that is yet to come. Hasn't happened and won't happen until Jesus closes out the church age, comes in heaven, calls out his church, and takes us home. And then the clock is going to begin ticking again in this last seven-year period, is going to start. There is some Old Testament reference for this. You know when you read in Genesis that Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. Here's a guy who walked along with God and he didn't die. He simply was taken off the earth. He is taken off the earth not long before Noah builds an ark and goes through a flood goes through this terrible period of judgment. Death all around, but Noah makes it through in the ark. And this seems to be, as much as there is in the Old Testament, a picture of the church. Like Enoch, we're going to be called out. We walked with God, and then we were not, because God took him. God calls us out of the earth. But the Jews, like Noah, are going to be left behind to go through this terrible period of judgment in which there's death and desolation all around, for this period, for a brief period, and then everything starts over. And that gets back into the specifics, the ushering in of an age of righteousness. That's going to begin at the end of that seven-year period. But until that's over, what we've got is, it sure looks to me like the end of the church age, that these things are winding down. And certainly it can't be long before Jesus comes in the air, gives a shout, those who are alive on the earth are caught up, we meet those who've already died, we're raised with them, we meet the Lord in the air, and it says, "So shall we ever be with the Lord? And as we meet with the Lord in heaven, God's time clock on earth for Israel begins again. And seven years, this last period of seven years is yet to be uh, yet to occur the thought that we're near the end, you know, we look back and we say, why didn't they know? How could they not understand this was Jesus? This was the Messiah? You know, but I sometimes look at where we're at today. How could we not know that things are winding down for the church? You know, Jesus says there's a time, there's a daytime is the time to work and the night comes when you can't work and you got to work when it's time. And, you know, the truth is the church... Uh, how can this not be the, the remaining, the, our clock time ticking out, so to speak, this interim before God takes up the Jews and Israel again? And it makes me think, you know, if the night is coming and we're still here in the daytime, uh, what should we be about? You know, here's Daniel praying, seeking God, confessing the sins of himself and the nation, and requesting that God just keep his word, bring restoration. You know, certainly we should be about that same business. You know, that we're confessing our sins, certainly the sins of the church. We, we clearly, this age of the church has been no better than any other age that, that preceded us. I don't think we've been any more faithful than any other group that's received God's blessing and God's call. Confessing our sins as Daniel did and making request. You know, uh, Paul talked about saying, come Lord Jesus. We want to see you. We want to make you our priority. We want you to finish up, seal up this prophecy, bring it to an end. We want to see you. We want to be with you. It does look like the church age is almost over and the clock for Israel is going to begin again. There's a verse in Revelation that says, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. We've talked in the past about the fascination the world has with Antichrist in the sense in which it's misplaced attention. You know, the end of all of this isn't Antichrist. It's Jesus Christ. It's not the Antichrist, but it's God's choice for Messiah. That's where our, our thoughts should be. Excuse me. <clears throat> Listen to these verses out of John. Nathaniel says about Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Lord, you amaze us with the accuracy of these words that Jesus, your Messiah, would come at a given time. He would do specific things. And your Son, Jesus, did them all, Lord. Certainly, there's no excuse for having not recognized him. And yet, Lord, we are not casting stones at your people, the Jews, because like them, we know that uh, we, like sheep, have gone astray. Lord, it's only your grace, it's only your goodness that has reached down and saved us. Lord, we would pray with Paul, come, Lord Jesus, Lord, we ask that as you complete this church age, you would find us a Philadelphia, not a Laodicea. That you would enable us to be faithful with the little power, the little influence you give us. That you would open doors of ministry to us that none can shut. That you would find us like Daniel on our knees before you, putting you and your things first. That we would be quick to confess our own sins and the sins of the church that, Lord, we would be quick to make requests of you for those things we know you want to do to bring salvation to still many around us before this period ends. And, Lord, we thank you that we know that as surely as the primary part of this 490-year period has already transpired, we're absolutely confident that this last period in which you Seal up vision, Lord, in which you have made atonement for sin and bring in righteousness in which it all occurs. Lord, thank you for telling us ahead of time what you're up to and what you're about. It helps us to be aware. Help us to live like people who know you, who have understanding of the times, and know what to do. And Lord, help us to see you, not just timetables, not prophecies, but see you, Lord Jesus, you yourself as the center of all our hopes, the center of all our desires. Help us to place you preeminently in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.